Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks, Assistant Director at the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi. And child and adolescent psychiatry fellow Dr. Al Atkins. Hi, Al. Hey, everybody. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Let's Get Psyched is not intended to replace mental health assessment and treatment. The information shared on the show is for educational purposes only. Well, on this episode of Let's Get Psyched, we're going to discuss masking or camouflaging for people on the autism spectrum. And to do that, we're happy to have join us Professor Judy Reven. Dr. Reven is a clinical psychologist and professor of psychiatry at pediatrics at the University of Colorado, Colorado Medical School. She runs an interdisciplinary diagnostic clinic for individuals on the autism spectrum and developed Facing Your Fears, a CBT program for children with autism and anxiety. Judy's working to move to evidence-based care for anxiety in autism into the community where she trains school providers to deliver interventions in their school settings. Uh, also of note, she enjoys camping, spending time with her pe pets, Linus, Lucy, and Charlie. And a, as a big fan of peanuts, I recognize that. Well, uh, Judy, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Well, first question is, and I didn't know anything about this until now, is uh, what, what, do you, what is being referred to with masking or camouflaging in the autistic community? So, you know, those are kind of terms that have, uh, people have started to talk about, I would say in the last maybe five years, five to seven years. And it's really come from the neurodiversity movement where we've heard from uh, adults with autism, or you might hear me also say autistic adults, who've reported that when they have to interact in a neurotypical world, they have to fake it. So they have to um, try to pretend that they fit in. They might have to uh, be more social than they might normally feel. And, and so they feel like they are almost literally putting on a mask to be somebody who they are not. And then they get home and then it's like they're exhausted. So does that look like basically all of the good intentioned efforts that um, ABA and, and other therapists are doing kind of to help uh, autistic folks. And I'll try, I'll try on the identity first thing mm -hmm. and say autistic folks. Um, maybe, hey, you need to look at facial expressions and, and care about these things that you wouldn't otherwise notice, which comes totally unnaturally to an autistic uh, human. Is that doing that all day? Would that be kind of um, masking? Yeah, I think it's, um, that's actually, a, you bring up an interesting point, and we can maybe talk about the, the role of early intervention and intervention in general for people with autism. But I think it's, it's, it's kind of less about that, but, it's, but, but in some ways it is about having been told your whole life, this is a way to behave in the social world. Um, you need to have conversation. You need to have chit-chat. You need to be able to ask people for help. You need to be able to have sustained social interactions. Um, these are things that our community has been told from very young ages in order to sort of behave, get ahead, um, be successful. Um, and so many of our community try, they try hard to do that. 
Um, but it's really hard. And what we're just now learning over these last few years, as people have started to talk about this idea of masking or camouflaging, is the toll and the burden of that um, trying to be somebody you are not um, many days of your life. So that's that's we're really hearing these kind of self-reports from from our uh, adult community. Now, I imagine that this could really uh, kind of make things worse for folks with autism because of this this kind of burden that they have to be different and have to change themselves. So have you seen that? Has it led to more isolation, more anxiety or things? What kind of issues could this lead to? It's, you know, it really does lead to some mental health issues. And in fact, that's really uh, kind of the heart of the neurodiversity movement, as I understand it, which is the mismatch of a neurodivergent individual living in a societal world or community where people have expectations for you to be neurotypical or social. And it's that mismatch that um, is the part that's over time is is burdensome. And yes, does lead to depression, anxiety, um, and, uh, you know, just a lot of fatigue and exhaustion. I want to give you kudos and and give all of your coworkers kudos in the field of autism. I think it's really cool that uh, you guys are allowing a patient led movement to inform how you do things in a real way. Um, I think there are so many examples in medicine where patient led movements are scorned. And so that just excites me. You know what? That is actually incredibly important. And I think we, I, I'll speak for myself. I have a lot more work to do in terms of including the, the neurodiversity movement into my, just my language um, and how I interface with patients. But yeah, it is a big movement. And I think um, aut- um, autism researchers and clinicians are, are taking note. And there is much more of a presence of autistic researchers, so people who identify as having autism at international conferences, presenting. Um, we're including um, autistic adults as part of our research teams, part of our clinical advisory boards. So I think there is definitely a movement that's happening. We, we do need to do better, no question. But, um, but we're excited to hear the voices of uh, people with autism. So I, let's say um, I'm a patient and, or, or I'm an autistic human and I've uh, been um, going through my whole day uh, masking and, and just kind of doing the things that they said I should do in order to not create a ruckus, um, maybe avoiding stimming in public or uh, you know, just kind of trying to do all these things that don't really feel natural to me, don't really fit my brain, uh, and feel forced upon me. Mm-hmm. What is this idea of burnout? Well, I think it's the toll. I think that is what the toll leads to. So Matt, the toll of masking, the toll of camouflaging can lead to this phenomenon called autistic burnout. And I think it's taken a while for many of us to wrap our heads around what does that mean? And I remember in the uh, a number of years ago, working with adults who would describe themselves as having a lot of brain fog, a lot of exhaustion, a lot of difficulties having um, like attention to the things that they used to do. Um, they maybe couldn't pay as much attention anymore a little bit of um, anhedonia, you know, not even enjoying some of the things that they used to do. 
and they'd, you know, they'd get all kinds of scans and all kinds of medical workup and, and yet nothing was identified. And these folks would tell me, you know, but here's my reality is that, that it is exhausting to get up. It is exhausting to pay attention. I used to work and maybe I can't work anymore. So, um, so I think it's taken a while for some of us to really wrap our heads around this phenomenon that, that we can't easily pinpoint in a, in a medical workup, but that is, is really been described by many autistic adults um, over time. And, um, and I think it's really, it's, it's important that people are really starting to talk about it because I think it can lead to suggestions for what we want to do for our community as they move into the work world or, or secondary education. What are things that, um, that people in the community can do um, that, and how does society feel that they we can change. I mean, I'll kind of mention a little bit of like patient-led care and things like that. What What are some things that we all can do? So I, I might work with a number of young adults, let's say, who are um, wanting to go to college. Um, but the idea of a full course load of whatever, what is it, 15 hours you have to take um, in a semester, that feels like so much. And so what what has been much more successful for my young adults who are going to college is to maybe start off with one class and see how that goes. Maybe try to do two classes at the most. Maybe trying to have um, a dorm, if they're living on campus, to have a dorm room that is a single so that they can go home into their own space and really just do a lot of decompressing. Um, and I think sometimes there's like, oh, come on, it's a full course, you're a smart person, you ought to be able to do a, a full case, a course of, of classes. But I, but what I've been hearing time and time again from the, the young people I work with is that's way too much. And they want to be successful. And they, they then struggle with exhaustion and trying to get everything done and doing it perfectly. And they, and they struggle. I'm not saying everybody, of course, but, um, but a number of folks have had that issue. So I think allow for that, allow for the downtime, allow for uh, modified classes. If it's an employment situation, allow for a different kind of pace of a job, um, allow for different kinds of breaks, uh, because I do think that's what what um, I've been hearing that has been helpful. So to me, I, I love this stuff. Um, I think this sounds like the curb cut effect, which I just, I want to go into for a second. So the curb cut effect is named after curb cuts, which are the little ramps in the sidewalk made for folks in wheelchairs. Um, but what we start to realize is that when you make an accessibility feature for one group with different abilities, you end up uh, assisting all people. Um, and and it, that that curb cut ended up helping people on bikes and helping all kinds of people that you know uh, blind folks with with the the they they put the the um, bump pads in there and there there was all kinds of ways in which that was a boon to other people and as as some you know myself as someone who I think this is the first time I'm saying something like this on air but you know I struggled tremendously in in a lot of school and. Um, I was sitting in my supervisor's office today and she has a bunch of fidget toys, which were made for, for, you know, as a kind of um, accessibility option for learning difference folks. 
And we're just sitting there and we're talking and it's totally acceptable for me to be playing with a fidget toy and she's playing with one and we're occasionally interrupting her conversation to talk about the fidget toys. And that's the world I want to live in. That's a better mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. And all of these things that you just mentioned are things that I don't see who, who would possibly not want their school to have the option for break time when you're sitting in a, in a, in a closed room all day as a kid who really was rather, would rather and maybe is designed to be outside you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think the universal design approach is, def- is, is incredibly important and is, and is really beneficial to all, all kinds of folks. I mean, just a quick example of that is I moderated a panel on Friday uh, for an autism conference and we had um, autistic adults on the panel and parents and providers. And then we had, of course, a whole audience. And one of the autistic adults has said to me before we do this, he said, you know, you need to make sure that, um, uh, we all have the freedom to move around. And so that it doesn't seem so unusual that the panel is moving. Why don't you tell the audience that they're free to move around? It's a 90 minute panel. And then, um, and that we are too. So I made the announcement and I said, Hey, everybody, you know, we've got this 90 minute panel, super excited to have you here. Um, feel free to move around. If you need to go do something, stretch, do whatever, we're great. And by the way, our panel is going to do the same thing. If they feel the need to get up and move around, they will do it so that um, it kind of eliminates the folks who feel like they do need to move or do do need to maybe put on a pair of headphones or do need to do some other things to kind of take care of themselves um, without feeling like I'm somehow the only one. What are some things that providers can do specifically? What what are uh, to, to make people not feel as burnt out? So... I think it probably starts uh, well before adult life. It probably starts um, when with young children and families. And one of the things I think that the neurodiversity movement would want people to know is that all differences are to be celebrated and including disability. Disability should be celebrated and that we don't, and I'm speaking from the neurodiversity perspective or neurodivergent perspective, is that is that folks would say, we don't want to be cured. We don't want you to get rid of our autism. In fact, it's really kind of an interesting thing when I started to do a number of, of kind of interviews for other kind of contexts at my job and interviewed a lot of adolescents and young adults. And I said, tell me about your autism. Like, what do you, what do you think about your autism? And they're like, I... It's been hard for me, but I would not give it up. I don't want to give it up. I, it's my, sometimes they'd say it's my superpower and it's very much something that, that is important to, to identity. And um, so when providers like me would come in and say, Hey, let's really try to help support this part of your social communication or this part of your rec leisure activity or this part of your behavior, you know, there's a little bit of a pushback. It's because, wait a minute, this is who I am. Don't try to change who I am fundamentally, um, but support me. So I think what providers um, like myself need to do probably more than I'm already doing is listen to voices at younger ages and really try to think about what the opinions and preferences are of our school age kids, our adolescents, our young adults, so that um, when I am making a suggestion for a for a particular kind of intervention or program or service, it's very much in keeping with what they want, as opposed to 
I somehow know better that this would be good for you. And I do think we've gotten into, we as a field for years, have, uh, you know, can get into a, I think I know best what you need. Mm-hmm. And um, I really tried to, and many of us are backing away from that so that we can really incorporate the voices of the people we work with. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And we're talking about masking, camouflaging in the autistic community um, with Professor Judy Reven. Um, Judy, I want to ask, you know, kind of pick up where you were talking about how you're bringing this into the community. So when you bring this in the community, how do you approach folks? How do you make these kind of changes um, where they're not trying to change you know, folks with autism to f- to fit into the, um, the 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 majority of of students, but you try to uh, be able to bring these accommodations and these these flexibilities and these approaches to everybody. You know, it's it's a kind of complicated issue. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. Um, I think it requires a lot of dialogue with a lot of different folks. So, to um, Alan's point earlier, which is to be inclusive of the sort of patient voice of the autistic voice. I mean, I think that is a key towards improving our processes across clinical work, research, um, and then just how we teach others about autism. So having um, autistic adults be really part of all of those activities will help us even just change our language. It'll help us think about how we change the content of what we talk about Um, and kind of shift a little bit about the priority. And to be fair, I'm not saying that um, that services or supports aren't necessary. Everybody needs it. We're all human beings. All human beings need services and supports from time to time. All of us have needs from time to time. So it isn't about eliminating the need and only having accommodations, but it is really trying to listen to the voices of um, autistic people in particular, but also their families, of course, and find out what's important to them. So speaking of changing our language, something that's been going on throughout the show is we've all kind of been considering, except for probably Judy, who's comfortable in her language, we've been considering whether to say autistic folks or folks with autism. Can you talk a little bit about that and whoever um, wants to? Yeah, I mean, I um, so when I first moved, you know, my career into the uh, disability community, into people with developmental disabilities, um, it was always person first. So the language is, um, I am a person with autism. I'm a person with a developmental disability. Um, and so the, the person first. And many of us, providers especially, have stuck with that language. We use it in our scientific writing. I use it in the reports I write. I use it in my teaching. I give it, I do it in my presentations. And then um, the um, autistic adults um, have said to us, um, meaning all of the providers and families, which is we prefer identity first. We prefer for you to refer to us as autistic adults or autistics. And there's actually a whole language around the preferences of autistic people. And so what I try to do is, I actually, you can probably hear, I flip back and forth. And I flip back and forth because it's hard for me to change adults with autism um, entirely to kind of remove it completely from my vocabulary, but I want to very much respect the preferences of autistic adults, which is to lead with identity first. Now, just like with any community, we can't say 100% of people with autism prefer it that way. I have worked with adults who definitely want person first. So what I usually do is I ask a person what they prefer. 
And but by and large, people have been leaning more towards, especially the adult community, have been leaning more towards identity first. We had um, Dr. Barry Prezant on our show a few episodes ago, and he shared the same thing. And he said in his writing, he will also switch back and forth and ask what the um, person prefers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, did, that's exactly right. Did Barry Prezant say what what made him switch back and forth other than patient preference or person preference? I don't want to get this wrong, but my understanding going into this conversation we're having right now was that you know in the neurodiversity movement there are lots of different groups and some people prefer person first and some people prefer identity first um and i don't know if i heard that from listening to his podcast or (laughs) i don't know where i got that from but possibly he's the one who um uh opened me up to that cool i think Sorry, go for it. I was just going to say, I think the other part that's complicating that, of course, is where people are in their embracing of autism. So I've certainly worked with numbers of folks who embrace it, just like I gave you the examples of like the, the teenagers or the young adults who are like, yeah, I wouldn't get rid of my autism at all. Yeah. The truth is, there are also people who I've worked with who said, I hate my autism. I want to get rid of it. It's made my life miserable. And those are folks who may not want to do an identity first um, uh, language and might, in fact, want to do person first and might be very careful who they choose to share um, about their autism identity. I'm wondering if um, I can turn the conversation to um, when you're actually interventions and ways of assisting folks from managing anxiety, because this is a program that is evidence-based that you and your and your colleagues have developed facing your fears. I wonder if you could just kind of describe it a bit and then how it might be a little bit different than the other approaches that have been used. That's such a great question. Um, so here's, you know, so we've been developing it and thinking about anxiety and autism for almost 20 years at this point. And when we first got into it, there was very little out there. So with regard to autism and anxiety, There was medications people were recommending, but there was not a lot of attention towards therapeutic approaches. So I was trained in CBT in graduate school, and I thought, well, there's got to be some CBT about anxiety, which was not my expertise at the time. And I looked at a lot of different programs for CBT for anxiety in children. And one of the things I noticed was I loved all the core components. A lot of evidence is behind CBT for anxiety in the in the general population for adults and kids. And I thought there's got to be a way to bring it to my community, the community I work with. But the problem was the protocols I, were, I was looking at felt to me to be too language-based and too abstract. And that when I would find myself asking my kids, the kids I work with, tell me what makes you anxious, describe it for me. How do you feel? I would get blank looks. I would get a response of, I don't know. I would get shut down. And I'm like, oh, this is not working. I've got to do something that's going to help bring the core components of CBT, psychoeducation and exposure to my kids, my population. But if it's too language based and too abstract, I'm going to lose them. So a lot of what we did in our development of the Facing Your Fears program is really think about how do we make this content accessible for our population so that it makes sense. So we're really translating these abstract kinds of concepts into ways that make sense 
in more concrete kinds of ways. So that honestly, not just kids that have autism, but like all kinds of different kinds of learners can access a curriculum that might feel a little too abstract if you've got a specific learning disability or a language impairment or something like that. So that's that's the biggest difference, honestly. I mean, there's all other things like pacing and use of rewards and a ton of parent involvement, which may be a bit different from some of the other kinds of protocols. Can you give us an example of um, how you modified something to be less, uh, I don't remember how you said it, like language and um, abstract, language oriented and abstract? Abstract, sure. So, um, you know, when you when you're seeing a, a client or a or, or a patient in in your office and you their parent is bringing them to you, to you for anxiety, you know, after you do a little rapport building, chances are you'd probably say, so tell me what makes you anxious, and tell me how you know how you feel and how can you tell. And when you start asking some of those questions, our kids, as I said, shut down. So what we found pretty early on is if you make a worksheet that has a ton of choices on there and a lot of pictures and some other content that is visual that makes my words more meaningful, by and large, they can take a look at that list and they can say, oh, okay, it's this, it's the dark, it's shots, it's thunderstorms, it's bees. And we could see right away, the open-ended questioning was getting us nowhere, but this kind of really structured concrete kind of approach was somehow opening up a, oh, I get it now. That's fascinating. And so that would be one example. And so I'm assuming you did studies on this. What have you found in your research? Yeah, so we've done, you know, we started with some case studies. We've moved to um, kind of pilot studies. We've done our randomized controlled trials and the multi-site study, um, all on the clinic-based Facing Your Fears program. And uniformly, we have seen significant reductions in parent-reported anxiety for kids who participated in the program compared to treatment as usual. The outcome measures have been um, parent report and child report, which in some ways is a little bit inconsistent uh, for autistic kids. Sometimes um, uh, we we weren't always sure how, um, how best to understand their own self-report, but honestly, over time and over our last handful of studies, they've really consistently showed um, and, and reported improvements in anxiety for themselves, as well as to their own parent report. So that's been a very consistent finding. I heard you say controlled. How did you control for this? Do you mean the randomized control trial? Is that what you mean? Mm -hmm. So that was done in our university clinic and we randomized, um, we had a block of kids. So 10, 10 kids that would either be randomized to the control group, which was essentially a wait. They had to wait for treatment versus active treatment. And then um, we compared the outcomes of the people that had to wait and get whatever they were getting in the community with the folks who were randomized to our facing your fears group and compared findings at the end of the 14 week period. It's a 14 week program and then compared the, the outcomes. Can I ask you a question about parents and parents parenting styles? How yeah. can different parenting styles? Because parents, I'm sure, are just agonizing sometimes. You know, you mean, uh, listen to this episode. Oh my God, did I do something wrong? And how do I help my kid with anxiety? How can the parenting style interact and maybe inadvertently maybe increase anxiety or, or alleviate it, that kind of thing? Oh gosh, Aaron, I love that question. 
because um, here's why I love it. I love it because one of the things that we do in the Facing Your Fears program is I've, I've really had to think a lot about how do we include parents in a program for their kids who are anxious and how do we do it that goes beyond just providing psychoed of how any one of us manage our anxiety symptoms? Like, are there some things parents need to know about all parents, not just parents of kids with autism, but all parents need to know. And one of the things we talk about very directly is we talk about parental anxiety and we talk about parental protection. And so, so many of us as parents, we, you have to always do these little judgments all day long. Should I push my kid? Should I protect my kid? Should I push my kid? Should I protect my kid? Can they do this? Can they not? And if you have a child that have some, has special needs, you have to do it even more, right? You have to really make these calculated decisions about should I protect? Should I not? And so we talk with our family super directly about how to do this. That is less about blame. My goodness, this is universal. And that's what we talk about. We talk about the universality of, I'm feeling a little anxious, pushing my kid to do this thing. Is it okay? Can they do it? And we talk really directly about how, what is your own issue versus what is your child's skill set? If your child has a good skill set to be able to do the thing that they're supposed to do, maybe you should do it. And it's not about how anxious you are or not. So anyway, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's such a good question. It's such an important thing to pay attention to. It sounds like mindful self-compassion. Um, if I may out you, Tosh, uh, Tosha and I are working together on a mindful self-compassion workbook oh, where, <laughs> yeah, I, if I remember correctly, kind of like the, the algorithm is you feel your feeling like without running away from it. And then the, st the second step, I'm probably going to mess this up, but <laughs> the, the <laughs> second step uh, is, is, is like kind of to universalize your feeling, to think about whether other people are, are sharing your pain. T Tosh, did I mess it up or is that? There's <laughs> mindfulness, self-kindness, and then the universality component. Okay, number yeah. three. We haven't done okay. it in a while. So. Yeah, yeah. I love this plug for a book that have never been written right at the end of the show. There we go. <laughs> Oh, just, just kidding. <laughs> Dr. Judy Reven, thank you for joining us on this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And that's all the time we have for this edition. Today, we talked about, with Dr. Judy Reven, autism and the impact of masking and camouflaging. And thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi and Al Atkins. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions to the show, you can write us at GetPsyched on KUCRGmail.com. You can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform, as well as enjoy an extended version of the show. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode is recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Yasmin Dakama. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.